I just wanted to let you all know to stick around after the ending credits at the end of this episode, because I'm going to do something a little bit different than I usually do. Uh, There's just a piece that I want to talk a little bit about that didn't really fit in with the flow of the episode proper, and so I'm going to just deal with a few things after um, the ending music and stuff. So make sure you, uh, you stick around for that. Coronation of a King. Psalm 2. Hear the word of the Lord. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in his way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The Word of the Lord Kiss the Son Those are weighty words to heed, as the consequence of not kissing the Son, as presented in these verses, is to perish. Yet, these verses also remind me of an infamous kiss, which Bob Dylan talks a little bit about towards the end of his song, With God on Our Side. Dylan says, quote, Through many a dark hour I've been thinking about this, that Jesus Christ was betrayed by a kiss. But I can't think for you. You'll have to decide whether Judas Iscariot had God on his side. End quote. Hmm. Judas Iscariot kissed the sun, on his coronation day, in fact, the day that the sun was to ascend to his father to be seated at the father's right hand, the day the religious leaders were going to see him lifted up in glory. Judas kissed the sun, yet he was damned, the son of perdition. Kiss the sun and be blessed. Kiss the sun and be damned. Understanding this distinction of kisses is going to be vital for us as we evaluate our own spiritual journeys, and it's the focus of what we're going to be dealing with in our False Prophet episode here today. While the Church has always proclaimed that it is kissing the sun, how has the Church in history kissed the sun with its lips and been damned for doing it? If you're only going to know one event from early Church history, then Personally, I think that it ought to be the rise of Emperor Constantine to power. The rise of Constantine is interpreted by Christians in a variety of ways, both good and bad. But everyone acknowledges that the rise of Constantine marked an important shift. It's important because with Constantine, persecution against Christians not only ceased for the most part, but Christianity actually began to receive acknowledgement and benefits from the state within a generation or two of Constantine's rise. I mean, that all sounds really good for Christianity, though, right? If you don't have to endure persecution, it might be a little easier to convince pagans to convert. If you have a nicer space to worship than someone's small house, that's probably pretty appealing. If you get kickbacks from the state and have more money to spend on the poor... That's really pragmatic. In theory, all of those things can be really good, it seems. But one of the problems is that the ramifications don't stop there with those hypothetically good things. Instead of being satisfied with peace and comfort, times of ease and power often lead to a desire for more control and influence. 
If you're able to wrest power from the pagans, then perhaps you can force people into the church and force them to have their children baptized there. Now, for especially a lot of Protestants, that might not seem like all that big of a deal. Like, you know, to have your kids forcefully baptized, like, of course, that, that infringes on your rights and stuff. But whoop-de-doo, right? They, they spritz a little water on your kids. Who cares? Well, I mean, that's, it's actually a, a really big deal. You know, just as a, uh, an example from here in Romania, uh, just a few years ago, I was on an airplane and I was sitting next to this Romanian guy and, um, you know, we start to talking and I, I tell him what I do and he's like, oh, I'm Orthodox. I'm like, cool, that's awesome. We kept on talking and talking and, uh, and this guy ends up saying, I'm an atheist. I'm like, what? You just said you're Orthodox. Explain this to me. He's like, well, of course I'm Orthodox. Like my my parents had me baptized in the Orthodox Church. I said, but you're an atheist. He's like, well, yeah, I don't believe that, but you're Orthodox. Yeah. He's like, okay, so let me wrap my my mind around this. You can't help that you were spritzed with water, but the, apparently that's like a really big deal to you. Like that that creates some identity for you. But like now that you know the truth, what you think is the truth. If you would have kids, you're not going to baptize them, right? Because you don't believe that anymore. He's like, well, of course I would. I'm Orthodox. So like this, this idea that you can force people to be baptized is, uh, is a really big deal. Um, because in the United States, we, we can't grasp that uh, like religion for us is this individual choice and this uh, intellectual assent. But for a lot of people around the world... Uh, it's more of a social identity. Like if if you're baptized, even against your will, like as a as a baby, you have there's no volition involved on your part. Nevertheless, that makes your identity kind of set in stone. And so this was a big deal to forcefully bap- baptize people and uh, kind of force them into the church that way. But you know, beyond all that, beyond forced baptisms and conversions. Um, if you're able to control legislation through the state, then you can also end up writing Christian morality into law and making society more moral and just, right? So, I mean, you can force conversions, force baptism, force morality. Like, I mean, Christians have got a lot of power at this point after Constantine. And if you have the power of the sword behind you, you can also do another thing. You can shut up those Christian sects that you view as heretical, and you can prevent them from competing with your preferred brand of Christianity. I mean, the Orthodox brand, right? Of course, this is all exactly what happened. With the rise of Constantine, there was a rapid decline in the quality of Christians, not just from the bottom up, from the top down. Religious leaders started persecuting each other and quickly began to seek the sacralization of Christianity and society. And with the priesthood becoming quite lucrative, there began to be all kinds of really messed up leaders, bishops, and popes. So while there are a lot of Christians who look back on the rise of Constantine as a good thing for the church, because it marked the beginning of Christendom as a force to be reckoned with, it marked the beginning of great prestige and influence for the church in the world. Uh, But on the other hand, others like myself, we see this rise of Constantine as a time which led to a whole lot of corruption and change in values and teachings of the church, like the dismissal of having a skeptical eye towards wealth or the dismissal of nonviolence. Post-Constantinian Christianity became less about living the ideal of Christ and more about living in a reality which called for compromise and pragmatism to accomplish one's own definition of the perceived good. Influence and power were good because they accomplished Christ's goals for conversion and discipleship. It forced people into the church and it made them conform. How could foregoing such power ever be excused? We had to grasp at that power, didn't we? We had to embrace it. The dismissal of secular politics then became the unpardonable sin for Christians. And living the ideal of Christ, merely an ineffective idea hardly anyone countenanced anymore other than maybe the ascetics, the monks who kind of lived out in the desert away from reality. Now, if you actually read the teachings of Jesus, they deal with a whole lot of renunciation. Give up your home, your mother, your father, 
deny yourself, renounce all things. Conversely, James shows us that the pursuit of desires, which is what a failure to renunciate leads to, results in terrible things. And James says, quote, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure, that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. End quote. Now, if we apply this to post-Constantinian Christians, to the, the shift that happened here, it's really easy to see what happened to the church or what played out. After persecution, there was calm. After want, there was plenty. After powerlessness, there was power. After voicelessness, there was influence. Now, these things aren't necessarily bad, but they do have a tendency to lead to the desire for either more of those things or the desire to maintain those things at all costs. It's these desires to protect and to attain which lead to injustices, to wars, and to violence. The post-Constantinian church became an aggressive and repressive church rather than a loving church. Of course, these are broad strokes here, and you can find beautiful streams of church history along with magnificent heroes of the faith throughout Christendom. A great book that I'd recommend that digs into this kind of thing uh, as kind of a, a starter is called Bullies and Saints. I, I highly recommend it uh, as just a, an overview for this topic. But suffice it to say for now that the post-Constantinian shift is a real thing, and it's important, however it is you want to interpret its overall impact on the world or on Christian teaching. It's a, a moment of church history that you should be aware of. Following the rise of Christendom, or as I would define it, the, the church married to the state, this, this marriage relationship uh, being intertwined, the rest of church history is filled with those who would seek to control the levers of government, because uh, government and religion on Christendom are essentially one and the same thing. I mean, they function in tandem. Now, we could focus on any number of so-called Christian actions— Events like the Crusades are probably one of the first that come to most people's minds uh, related to this topic. You know, a war called to gain lands and plunder, to defend God's honor, uh, or any other number of noble and ignoble reasons that you want to ascribe to something like the Crusades. But it seems that there's always someone who's going to try to justify even the most unchristian of acts, like a lot of the Crusades ended up being, um, and it's kind of cherry-picking to go after the Crusades. So rather than look at the false prophet of religion by exploring something like the Crusades, I'm going to come kind of through the back door in this episode by looking at some less well-known acts in church history. And uh, acts that I think might be pretty unanimously acknowledged as unchristian acts, because these acts are founded on clear falsehoods. So by coming through the back door and finding a point of agreement with Christendom sorts of Christians, I think that might be helpful in illuminating the other power-mongering acts of the Erastianized post-Constantinian church. Um, hopefully, it, it uh, sort of like you know Nathan when he goes to David and he, he gives him that analogy of the, the sheep, that's that narrative, and David's like, oh, that, that guy who killed that poor man's sheep is horrible. And then Nathan's like, you are that man. I think it's sort of like that here, where you might think, uh, okay, the Crusades, I can excuse those. I can say that those were actually really good things because we, we defended justice and all that stuff. Uh, okay, great. But if I can show you this, this other aspect of uh, Christendom and, and how things really work behind the scenes, and you see what power mongers really were, then when you look at the Crusades and you see the people behind them and the things going on, you might be able to, to be a little bit more objective about something like uh, the Crusades and other aspects of church history that are pretty gross. So, let's dive into the episode proper. The first document that I want to discuss is called the Donation of Constantine. Now, there really isn't that much to the story of the document, Nevertheless, it is a document which has had some significant influence in medieval church history. It's a document which purports to be from the 300s, around the time of Constantine, or during the time of Constantine. But 
due to some anachronistic language, experts actually date the donation of Constantine as having been written around 750. Now, while we don't know exactly why the document was forged, or for whom it was forged, or by whom it was forged, we are able to see the impact of some of its claims and, and some of the probable intentions. Now, the document seemed to serve a number of purposes, two of which are in view for this episode. First, the donation of Constantine claimed that Emperor Constantine donated lands, basically Western Europe, to the church via Pope Sylvester. So the document, if believed to be genuine, gave the church significant political authority over Europe, as the head of government essentially ceded lands to the church. So the church owned these lands and, and, and had political influence then. Second, because the document claimed to be so early, it ended up giving primacy to the Western Church and the seat of Rome over the Eastern Church in Constantinople. In summary, this forged document gave the Church both external political power in the realm of secular politics and internal power in providing a claim to supremacy over other political uh, religious regions of the Church. Now, do you remember when Jesus talked about power in the Gospels? He said, quote, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as ransom for many. End quote. Yeah, well, this whole Christendom thing is not that. It's the exact opposite of, of those words Jesus said. It's a vying for power in order to lord it over others. And that's exactly what the donation of Constantine sought to do. It sought to gain power over others through manipulation and, I mean, straight-up falsehood. Interestingly, the birth date of the donation of Constantine is thought to be just a few decades before the birth, or rebirth, I suppose, of the Holy Roman Empire. In 800 CE, Charlemagne was crowned as Holy Roman Emperor, which added power not only to Charlemagne, but also to the Western Roman Church. Of course, this led to all kinds of civil wars and vyings for power, and the Western Church sacked their own brothers and sisters in Constantinople only 400 years later during one of their crusades. A crusade for God, though. And all of this was held up, if not at least in part by the donation of Constantine, definitely by the same spirit of supremacy that forged it. Another famous document of myth that was circulated in medieval Europe, created about three to four centuries after the donation, was a document called the Marvels of Rome. Now, I actually haven't read the whole document uh, because it's long, it's boring, and the script is, is really weird. I'll link it in the show notes so you can see for yourself, but they essentially write their S's as F's, so you have to kind of, like, when you see an F, sometimes translate it into an S but only sometimes because sometimes the S's are S's. So it's really hard to try to read. But the gist that I've gotten from reading through the documents and from looking through portions of it is basically that it's an origin story for Rome. Yeah, so there's the, the Romulus and Remus origin story, but that's a secular story. It's not going to really do for Christendom. The Marvels of Rome takes that secular myth and it tries to actually end up tying Christianity into it. You get something to the extent of like, Noah and his family, they just, after they disembark from the ark, they decide to build their home on one of the seven hills at Rome. Then, like, Romulus or one of the Roman heroes or something like that ends up building a wall around his hill as well as around Noah's hill, which ends up incorporating Noah, you know, the patriarchal family, into the founding of Rome. I guess, I don't know if Romulus and Remus were on the Ark too, or like if it wasn't a global flood. I have no idea what all the theology was behind that, but like this is a legitimate document, not a legitimate document, but a document that uh, legitimately existed, but it was so weird and like to us, it's clearly fabricated, but you know, people bought into this kind of stuff back then. So this mythological document is created to influence popular thinking as to the supremacy of Rome and to provide the Christian faith and the Catholic Church with political power. Because if, if Noah is a part of the original founding of Rome, I mean, that's pretty cool, right? 
like then Rome is way better than Constantinople for sure. So Christianity ends up being fused with the state. Religion and the state go together. That's Christendom. It might seem really stupid to us today that people would buy into myths of founding patriarchs and the unique greatness of a nation's origin story, or that these medieval Christians must have been so naive and ignorant to not see through the propaganda of religion so clearly inserted into a mythical origin story. We're so much smarter now. We're past that kind of thing. But medieval Christians did fall for it, and such propaganda was created exactly because it was credible with so many people. Fortunately, lies which linger long enough almost always get exposed, and the donation of Constantine's forgery was eventually brought into the light. Now that didn't happen until like 700 years after the forgery began its circulation, but it was eventually exposed. This guy named Lorenzo Valla, a Latin genius, took a good look at the donation and recognized it as a clear forgery. This Valla guy was pretty ballsy too because he was also exposing the idea of indulgences a good 50 years before Luther, and he was also looking at the notion of penance, something he thought was a bad Latin translation of Jerome's sloppy one, and Valla was looking at this concept of penance more as what we'd consider repentance, you know, the, the Protestant version. So for all of these exposings of the church of the day, Valla eventually became known as Luther's precursor. Now, I'm not sure exactly how much interaction, if any, Luther had with Valla's work, but you can certainly see that some of Luther's major critiques and skepticism about the church ran in the same vein as Valla's. Now, in some way, then, this guy who was willing to call out overreaches of power and to critique some of the pillars that Christendom was built on, may have had a hand in what would become the Reformation. Ah, the Reformation. We Protestants love that word. A time in church history where true Christians recognized the false prophet of a power-hungry and institutionalized church, when we renounced the deviation from Jesus' way and brought back true Christianity to the world. Maybe a little bit. I mean, there were some really corrupt aspects of the Roman Catholic Church, don't get me wrong. Um, you know, the time of the Reformation was, was really good, and some of the reforms were really big and really important. But you don't have to dig too deeply into the Protestant Reformation to see that it contained the same spirit of power as the earlier iteration of Christendom it replaced. Heretic burnings, drowning and murdering those who were considered rebaptizers, witch hunts, confiscating Catholic properties, you name it. The Protestant Reformation was of the same spirit as the Christendom which came before it, in part because it sought survival and prestige rather than martyrdom, power rather than witness. It joined with the powers of the state for protection and favor, with the princes and rulers, and therefore the church had to pay homage to them and to capitulate to them. The church had to kiss their sons over the son, lest their sons became angry. Protestants who were friends and co-laborers with Anabaptists just years before became caught up in the fervor of executing and persecuting anyone who didn't believe exactly as they did. In fact, the famous Westminster Confession of 1647, a very important Protestant document, especially in, in the circles that I run in, declared the following after having a century to think about how the Reformation was developing. The Westminster Confession of 1647 wrote this about the civil magistrate, quote, the civil magistrate may not assume to himself the administration of the word and the sacraments, or the power of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Yet he hath authority, and it is his duty to take order that unity and peace be preserved in the church, that the truth of God be kept pure and entire, that all blasphemies and heresies be suppressed, all corruptions and abuses in worship and discipline prevented or reformed, and all the ordinances of God duly settled, administered, and observed, for the better effecting whereof he hath power to call synods, to be present at them, and to provide that whatsoever is transacted in them be according to the mind of God. End quote. So the Westminster divines essentially gave the government the ability to keep the church pure. And how does the state do that, pray tell? Through the sword. Post-Reformation Protestantism ran on this type of thinking. Documents like the Westminster Confession, while not forged documents, 
became the new donation of Constantine in the marvels of Rome. Documents created by divines, documents viewed as being of a nearly holy origin and part of a continuing holy endeavor. Documents which propped up a Christendom whose heart was power and whose fuel was violent coercion, rather than a document like the Gospel of Jesus declaring good news and love. That was until there was yet another new birth. A group of persecuted and bedraggled, meek and lowly Christians set out across the ocean to seek a new land where they could live in harmony with natives and other fellow travelers, not forcing their views on anyone, not burning people as witches, not trying to grasp at the levers of government, but seeking a new land of freedom for all. These Christians built such a society, carrying the good news from sea to shining sea, making converts only of those who were willing as they traversed the rugged landscape of the new promised land. Of course, this is only a slight exaggeration of uh, the version of what a lot of American Christians believe. And we don't have the space or interest to have a whole history lesson here to kind of go through all that. Just suffice it to say that American Christendom maintained the same spirit as the old forms of Christendom, merely disguised the spirit anew. Now, there are a lot of ways that the spirit was disguised in, in the new world, It was disguised within the founding documents of the nation, proclaiming freedom for all while binding so many in chains. But it was also disguised in one of the very same documents used as an origin story for the previous iteration of Christendom, the Westminster Confession. Yes, indeed, when the spirit of manifest destiny spoke to the new nation of the United States, the spirit of God just so happened to speak anew to his people. Coincidentally, the spirit spoke in 1788, as the new American Constitution was in the middle of its ratification process. And what did the Spirit tell his people? It told them to revise the old confession written by the divines, in a manner which just so happened to fit with a new form of government that was in their interest to prop up. And now, where there once stood a call for the political leaders to keep the church pure through the sword, it was charged in an amendment to declare that a sword should never be used by the magistrate to compel on grounds of religion or against infidelity. Now, at first blush, this revision indeed seems like great progress, like the Spirit of God had finally overturned the spirit of power that had been ever-present in Christendom. But if you've listened to this season, or at least the False Prophet episodes, you'll know that this wasn't the case with the great American experiment. Power was still the spirit at the helm of this great venture, and Christendom, this spirit's willing vessel. The centuries that followed the American Revolution were filled with a plethora of evils on a scale unimaginable, most of which were done by self-proclaimed Christians in God's name for so-called good. But the spirit of power is hard for many of us in the West to see now because rather than manifesting itself in the concentrated form of one monarch or one dictator— The spirit of power in the West tends to mask itself by its diffusion of power among the masses. The government of the United States and other governments like it allow the sword to be masked by the masses. If a king enacts a genocide, blame the king. But if a whole people consent to genocide via their representatives, who's to blame? Well, I mean, I voted for the other party, so I'm not responsible, right? When everyone is to blame, nobody's to blame. Just as we briefly discussed in our our Haiti episode when dealing with the notion of uh, Gustave Le Bon and and his work, The Crowd. You know, this is the diffusion of responsibility, and it is a powerful disguise for the spirit of power. If the king issues an edict against all Jews or atheists, that's persecution of religion. If a government of the people, by the people, and for the people allow for the enslavement of some people, or for Indian removal— or for the forced schooling of Native American children in the the white man's ways. This isn't persecution, right? It's the will of the people. It's majority decision. I mean, we all agreed to it. But when self-proclaimed Christians have largely run the government, and when self-proclaimed Christians seek to control the government to force their will on others, what is the will of the people but the purported will of the Christian God? Legislation bears the sword against particular groups of people without ever naming those groups. And regardless of what our origin story or documents say, Christians of Christendom still seek to bear the sword, 
and we still do. Millions of the enslaved cry out for justice. Millions of Haitians cry out for justice. Millions of Native Americans cry out for justice. Millions of war dead across the globe cry out for justice. And the list goes on. The will of the people, the will of Christians at the helm of government, are responsible for these injustices. If we are a Christian nation, as many on the right would have us to believe, then all these injustices have inarguably been done in God's name. And if we're not a Christian nation, if the empire is Babylon, the city of man, why are so many Christians seeking the helm of power, as the Gentiles always do? This is Christendom, and great evils and injustices, murders and lies, these are just par for the course. Because Christendom seeks temporal salvation in comfort and control through steering the helm of power, rather than donning the helm of salvation, which is eternal life, both a full life now and a resurrected life to come, this is what we have. We Americans, of course, don't like to hear all this. Because we are moderns, and because many of us have grown up indoctrinated with our founding myths, indoctrinated both by the state and by the church, it's really hard for us to see how the American experiment is built on just as much myth as the ancient empires were. It just doesn't appear like myth to us because we think that what we believe is believable, and not like a belief in those silly gods of old. I mean, how is something objective, like a founding constitution, like I could actually hold it in my hands if I was allowed to, I can go see it, and how, how is that anything close to a mythical story about gods or Romulus and Remus or anything like that? Now, one is just a set of interesting and weird stories, ancient stories, which shouldn't confer authority onto a government. But the other is a gathering together of wills to consolidate their assent to certain truths and principles, and it's put in, in a tangible, a physical document. The two just seem categorically different, right? I think Hannah Arndt in her book, On Revolution, uncovers some helpful insights in regard to the mythical nature of our American origin story. The founding myths aren't mythical in the sense that we actually did create founding documents and we did base those on certain principles. Right? That's true. But the meaning and values that we infer into the founding is mythical. And while Arndt doesn't seem to uh, she does actually wax poetic about the founding of the United States at times. I do think that she also sees certain aspects in a realistic light, like the idea and importance of founding mythology. So what she says here is really insightful, and I, I want to quote her at length. So here's what she says, quote, The word religion must be understood in its original Roman sense and the piety of the founders would then consist in binding themselves back to a beginning as Roman pietas consisted in being bound back to the beginning of Roman history, the foundation of the eternal city. Arndt then goes on to talk about how Americans have worshipped the Constitution. Um, and then she continues, And since it was in this respect that the American Revolution was most conspicuously different from all other revolutions which were to follow, one was tempted to conclude that it was the authority that, uh, that the act of foundation carried in itself, rather than the belief in an eternal legislator, or the promise of reward and the threats of punishment in a future state, or even the doubtful self-evidence of the truths enumerated in the preamble to the Declaration of Independence that assured the stability for the new republic. End quote. Now this is really very important uh, for you to understand and I, I recommend going back and checking out the whole section in Arendt's book. I think it's about two-thirds of the way through. Uh, it's just a, a really lengthy section of, of high-quality insights here. Um, but what I think Arendt highlights is that while we look at the founding as being grounded in things like self-evident truths or in an all-seeing creator that endows those truths or rights or whatever— what the founding really rested on, and continues to rest on, in distinction to other prior revolutions, is a constitution that functions as an origin story. It was the origin story that bound the nation together, and still binds it together. Just compare the American Revolution to the French one, um, which we talked a little bit about. Now, the French Revolution had a lot of force behind it, but as Arndt points out, 
Strength is just what each individual has on their own. Power is something altogether different than strength. Power is the joining together of individual strengths to become a unit that that ends up being power. So with the French Revolution, you had a lot of individuals who were all clamoring for themselves as individuals or factions. It was a cacophony of disorganized and uncohesive voices. There wasn't an origin story which, which bound them together. Yeah, they, they created some documents and, and stuff, but there were, there were just so many factions, and uh, it ended up being much more individualistic than uh, a cohesive group origin story. And that's uh, primarily the point of origin stories, isn't it? Um, to be cohesive, to, make, to, to be like social glue. And Arendt, uh, Arendt unpacks this elsewhere when she says, quote, Power comes into being only if and when men join themselves together for the purpose of action, and it will disappear when, for whatever reason, they disperse and desert one another. Hence, binding and promising, combining and covenanting, are the means by which power is kept in existence. Where and when men succeed in keeping intact the power which sprang up between them during the course of any particular act or deed, they are already in the process of foundation, of constituting a stable world, worldly structure to house, as it were, their combined power of action. End quote. So the city of Rome has lasted for millennia, and its empire survived for nearly half a millennium. How was it that those who were alive hundreds of years after the city was founded were able to be a cohesive enough group to conquer lands and create a vast empire? Because they held to an origin story, not only in worshiping the same gods, but in having the same founding story of their city and their empire. This function is really no different than the American Constitution. Sure, there's verbal content to the document of the Constitution, and unlike the gods, the founders actually existed. But brute facts and mere words are not what really binds in the Constitution. A commitment that a bunch of old, dead white dudes made a few hundred years ago has no bearing on me because I didn't agree to it. It's not my promise. Lysander Spooner, in his famous work No Treason, makes this exact point. And Thomas Jefferson, likewise, understood the unintelligibility of asking the future generation to consent to a promise that they never made, which is why Jefferson said, quote, Every constitution, then, and every law, naturally expires at the end of 19 years. If it be enforced longer, it is an act of force and not of right. End quote. Why should it lapse every 19 years? Because that gives the next generation the option to renew the Constitution or to change it, since they never agreed to the old one in the first place. They were just born into a country uh, that lives under these promises that some people made a long time ago. Why should they be held accountable for that? So if I don't want to uphold the promises that a bunch of antiquated dead guys made to each other, why ought I to be bound? I'm really not, other than by the force of the many who buy into the origin story. And I mean, you can even see this, like look at the military. They, uh, what do they have to do? They have to take an oath to the Constitution, to the origin story, being bound to promises that they never made. They're made to re-up those, those promises and to protect that constitution, to buy into it. Um, and I think they even have to do this like every time they promote and stuff. But uh, like those promises, those oaths that Jesus forbade, like those are really important. And we just don't understand that in our, our culture today, even though it's still ever-present. So belief in the, in the founding, belief in and worship of the constitution binds many together, even today, in the religion of state. And they enforce the constitution of these promises religiously. And that's really what it is. Arndt points out, like, it is religion when you're bound to an origin story. Uh, because the belief is about far more than just words on paper, right? It's, it is about origins. That buying into origins is vital to keep the system going because if enough people refuse to buy into the myth that they're bound to another's promises then the power dissipates, right? The difference between strength and power, right? that combined power dissipates when the promises are broken and the system crumbles. And I think that's part of what we're seeing today, in the United States at least, the system crumbling because people are recognizing that they shouldn't be bound 
to these uh, to this to an origin story. It's mythology. So don't at all scoff at myth and origin stories. Such binding societal glue hasn't disappeared in the modern age. Origin stories, as Arndt tells us, constitute religion. And even in a secular age like this one, we are still very religious. As we look back through history, it's a lot easier to see the myths that those in the past were blind to. Myths like the donation of Constantine or the marvels of Rome. Or myths like the holy benevolence and insight of the Westminster divines or the founding fathers. To elevate any myth to a revered origin story is to lose the ability to discern history and to judge according to merits. It's to lose objectivity for the sake of preserving power. Because that's what origin stories give you. They give you power consolidated by a story that a group holds in common of a pristine past, uh, an overcoming of uh, opposition, a rising above circumstances, or any other number of things that uh, an origin story can give you. For true Christians, however, we must remember our true origin story. In the beginning was the Word, the Son of God. We started this episode by looking at Psalm 2 and the coronation of the king, the coronation of God's son. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish. But we also took a look at Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed the son and king with the very kiss that was demanded of him as homage. Christendom has claimed to kiss the son for as long as it's been around. Constantine claimed to kiss the son while doing great evils. Augustine and others claimed to kiss the sun while persecuting fellow Christians and forcing conversions. Those who forged and used the donation of Constantine to further the power of the church in the political sphere through an outright lie claimed to kiss the sun while fomenting civil wars and power grabs. Those who wrote the Westminster Confession claimed to kiss the sun while fostering tortures and executions of dissenters by the state. Those who rewrote the Westminster and the founding documents of the U.S., claimed to kiss the sun while enslaving others and committing genocide on behalf of God's provision of a new Israel, an Israel inhabited by a bunch of disposable savages. And modern nationalists claimed to kiss the sun while throwing morality to the side for the love of power and seeming effectiveness. The question I have for Christendom, then, isn't, have you kissed the sun? The question is, rather, in what manner have you kissed him? Have you kissed the sun with homage? as a disciple? Or have you kissed the son as Judas, a betrayer? But I suppose that this question is largely irrelevant, because questions don't work too well on those enthralled with Christendom, on those wrapped up with the idea of the consolidation of power at any cost. It's an irrelevant question because, as Bob Dylan said, you never ask questions when God's on your side. That's all for now. So peace, and because I'm a pacifist, when I say it, I mean it. This podcast is a part of the Kingdom Outpost Network. Please check out the links below to find other great podcasts and content related to nonviolence and kingdom living. Thank you for sticking around for the post-show kind of addendum that I'm adding here. Um, I wanted to, to just say a few important things that I thought would go better here as opposed to making a bunch of caveats in the middle of an episode and kind of ruining the flow and the sequence. Um, I want to say that I some some of the things that I talk about. So the, I talk a lot about the United States, and in this episode, I talked about the Westminster Confession, and those are are two things that I am thankful for. Uh, I am thankful for the opportunities that I had growing up in the United States, and I'm I'm thankful for uh, the freedoms that I do have in the United States. And uh, there are a lot of things that I am I am thankful for, and. Uh, when I critique the United States, it is not because I think there is no good, but it's because uh, I believe in internal critique. 
I believe, in pointing out our flaws uh, and, and problems and things that we need to correct. Um, and especially because people in my group just don't do that. And so it's a, a huge blind spot. Um, nevertheless, I don't want critique to come across as not my inability to recognize anything that I've received uh, or, or that is good that comes from it. Um, so I wanted to make that clear. But also along with the Westminster Confession, like I agree with the uh, vast majority of the Westminster Confession. Like pe- people in my um, my denomination, we kind of, that's kind of like our, our guide to figure out, okay, are you Presbyterian, right? Uh, and and so we go by that. And everybody takes, you know, one or almost everybody takes like one or two exceptions. I think uh, like one of them is um, the Sabbath. I don't think you're supposed to have fun. I mean, like play on the Sabbath or something. <laughs> Uh, so a lot of people take um, take exception to that. I think another one is like the, the Westminster says that you you shouldn't have any images of Jesus. So like no coloring pages for your kids, no uh, things like that. But it even there's a part in there where it says, and you shouldn't even picture Christ uh, uh, Jesus in your head. So like you're reading the Gospels and it says Jesus said like oh, can't can't think of Jesus right. A lot of people take exceptions to kind of those kinds of things. So the vast majority of the Westminster Confession, uh, I I would agree with, and I think um, you know it's great. What I am critiquing here, uh, and, and same thing with the Constitution, you know, just talking about the U.S. and and things like there's some really respectable things about what was done in that Constitution. Um. But my critique in this episode is about what's behind those documents. And what's behind those documents is is uh, more powerful than what's contained in those documents. Um, because it's the this origin story. It's this thing that binds people together that you can't really put your finger on. It's this, this, uh, this glue that's in the story, not in the written words of the document, that is really where the power is. And that's what I was trying to point out here. So hopefully uh, people have stuck around to listen to this addendum so that they can maybe understand what I was trying to, to get at and not think that uh, I, I can't recognize any good whatsoever in either the U.S. or the Westminster or, or something like that. You know, the donation of Constantine, uh, the marvels of Rome, like those things are, are forgeries and like solely myth. Uh so those, in my mind, are pure myth and don't have any value. Or something like the Westminster Confession or the uh, U.S. Constitution do have a value to them for good, but there's this uh, this mythology that's hidden behind it that people don't understand and don't see, and that's what we were trying to get at. And just as uh, one other aside, I mean... Part of what I've tried to do this season is is go into a bit of various historical events, uh, usually in the true conspiracy section. But there really is just so much history that you need to be aware of and uh, and filter through. That helps you to understand things a little bit better. You know, for for me, when I first came across this change in the Westminster that just coincidentally happened as the Constitution was being drafted up, you know, the Spirit of God just happened to speak and change his mind on, on government. Um that a government that that fit with uh, whatever the government was at the time and place, right? Uh, th- I, that just kind of gave me a, a more skeptical eye as I looked through history. And you know, a, as you look through history, you can see that we we build up the Puritans and Pilgrims as as uh, these people that uh, it you know maybe they're not the opposite, but it it's not nearly what we make it out to be. So, for example. A lot of people are like, well, the, the, the pilgrims were just, uh, or the Puritans were persecuted and they, they fled persecution. It's like, well, a lot of them came from Holland where there wasn't persecution. Like they had been living there for like 10 years. Uh, and and then they came over here for economic reasons. So yeah, sure, they initially fled because of persecution, but it wasn't some dream to come and make this, um, you know, this this perfect land where everybody could be religiously free. In fact, a great great example to point this out is 
you know, you go to the Massachusetts Bay Colony, I think it was, and uh, you've got this guy, Roger Williams, who's there. And he's saying, hey, guys, you know what? Uh, we're we're kind of taking advantage of uh, of the Native Americans here. We're not really buying their land fairly. Don't you think we should do that? So he does things like that, and then he, he uh, criticizes the king for some uh, er- King James for uh, some arrogant claims that he's making and, and stuff like that. And um, and they're like, all right, Williams, you're out of here. Uh, and so they kick him out of the colony. So he goes to Rhode Island, and in Rhode Island, um, he's, he's like, no, we're, we're going to separate this church and state. Like all, all, What they're doing in Massachusetts, the Puritans, like it's, it's pretty terrible. Or maybe not horrendous, but like it's, it's not good at all. And so in, in like the middle of his career there in Rhode Island, Rhode Island becomes in like six, the 1650s, like 1652 or something, they become the first state in the United States, the first colony to outlaw slavery. And now when, when uh, the parts of Rhode Island ended up coming together later, they ended up overruling that. But at least under Williams, Williams's direction, as long as he had significant influence, they, they outlawed slavery. And he fought for fair dealings with the Native Americans, similarly to somebody else who wasn't a Puritan, didn't have Puritan connections at all, uh, you know, William Penn. And the Quakers in Pennsylvania had really good relationships overall with the Native Americans because they, they treated them peacefully and, uh, and like human beings. Overall, overall. Um, and while the Constitution was writing slavery into it, the Quakers were freeing their slaves and paying them back pay for, for everything. So when you start to understand these, these themes, right, Christendom is generally not very good. And its spirit persists. Uh, so it, 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 you can trace it from Constantine you know, all the way up through, uh, through the United States. And it comes through the Puritans in part who are, are trying to control uh, religion and the state together and use the power of the sword. Whereas you've got overall people like Williams, who I think was okay with the sword in general, um, but you've got people like, like Williams who are more separatists from the state, like separating religion and state, and the Quakers who are not in the, in the stream of Christendom or at least are starting to dissociate themselves from Christendom, like Williams, and you see that they're the ones who end up making uh, humanitarian reforms, like not enslaving people and like paying people for their property instead of committing genocide. And um, I, I just think there, there are lots of common themes that you can find there. But what we do is we, we paint the Puritans as uh, you know these, these terribly persecuted people um, when, when they're really not all that persecuted. And then in 20 years later, you know, at 1620, Mayflower leaves, 20 years later uh, or so, you've got what Cromwell, who comes to power and does some pretty terrible, horrendous things uh, when, when he gets the sword. So it's like, oh, persecution's so bad, so terrible. But what, what does that group do as soon as they get power? They persecute, right? Uh, they persecute in big ways, uh, executions, burnings, all that stuff. Or, you know, in the United States, it was at least a little bit more tempered, and maybe they burnt some witches, some or uh, killed witches at some point. But um, you know, they would banish people, and and uh, they would still use the power of the sword to a certain extent. And so, I think it's important to see those themes and to understand um, how origins play a part in that, and how the spirit of power runs throughout Christendom, wherever uh, it, it, it manifests itself. All right, hopefully that addendum was worth your extra time and made some sense. Um, but that's it. Hope you enjoyed the episode.